Welcome to another fun-filled episode of Seishura, the Music Explorers podcast. As always, I'm Scoop Magoo. I'm Jim Jam. And we have our first anniversary episode of the year. And it's interesting because usually you think of the bookends of the year being a little bit slower. You think, you know, January, December, um, you know, on, on the, the latter end, the year is winding down, people are people don't you know want to release an album that'll be forgotten and kind of by the, the flip side in January um, you know the year is kicking kicking up and they don't want to get lost in the shuffle on the front end where people are just kind of getting acclimated to the new year of music but there are a lot of great releases um, e- even like these four that we narrowed it down to uh, there were some other ones that I you know almost considered swapping out but I, I think that we have a really nice well-rounded list uh, 45, 35, 25, and 15 year anniversaries, which is fun. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about all of them. I, I had a, a fun time listening to each of them. Um, some of them I hadn't listened to in a while, but all of them I have in my collection, which isn't always the case when we do these anniversaries. Sometimes it's, yeah, it's usually... Yeah, I, like I only have one that's not in my collection, and it's more of a, uh, you know, f- uh, a physical, you know, release issue more yeah. than anything. So yeah. availability. There we go. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't have much more to, to set up for this. So, you know, again, this is something we like to do to, to look back and, and see how um, see how these, these releases have aged. I mean, certainly the first one being as old as it is, uh, it definitely felt like a, a bastion of its time. But it, it's kind of interesting how all of these releases, in a way, felt like they belonged in their, their era. Um, or like they had elements that reminded me of that that period of time in terms of other listening that I did. Yeah. I, I don't know if you if you felt the same way. Yeah, no, I, it was it, it was it was an interesting listen. Um, I actually listened to a couple twice today. Uh, yeah, um, I think it's also worth noting that uh, we didn't really have anything for January uh, releases, or at least I, I think there just wasn't a, enough. I don't know if I, from what I could find to justify talking about some new releases, uh, though I'm sure you could have probably wrangled some up, but we're, we're saving that for next month. Uh, I have, I, I mean, I enjoyed a number of releases in January so far, but none... I haven't um, listened to anything yet. I, I think if I'm just being fair, I mean, there are a lot that I enjoy, but there, it's, it's always hard to gauge how, how much of, how much is the new year high? Like, just the fact that it's new music and how much will we'll stay. And, and, and by the end of the year, it's clear what albums were just kind of like, hey, this is a new release, and we're, you know, it's one of the few that are available. And then there are mm-hmm. some that actually do endure. Um, but these very much did endure, um, segue. And the first one is uh, probably the most universally known, beloved of, of the four. I think the, mm-hmm. well, I think the, the latter three can be, might be a little bit niche. Depending on your reason, little bit. like everyone knows and and at least appreciates, or at least everyone knows this guy. And of course, it's David Bowie with uh, Station to Station, nineteen seventy six, forty five years ago. Um, the return of the thin white duke. <laughs> it's it's yes. funny because I, I think what what band referenced that? Uh, it was Oxbow with the yeah. thin black duke. 
because I um, like I knew that was his you know nickname for him, but I didn't know where it was from. And then you know, <laughs> moments into this album, I was like, oh, okay, um, yeah. yeah. So so this is considered uh, one of his better albums. Uh, I mean, he has a ton of albums that are. Uh, kind of in the running for that mix depending on where you fall I think I checked Rate Me Music while I was listening and, and just taking notes and I think it was ranked third overall behind Low and Ziggy Stardust so you know kind of what good. about Blackstar? Um, I'm curious now where that ranked because I wasn't looking for it but uh, if, I own a number of Bowie albums and I really do think that that's one of the best things he's released and, and oh, yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's tough because not that I think there are a lot of Bowie detractors or anything like that, but I, I wonder, and sometimes I question myself about whether or not that's, it's because of his death that it was great. But I mean, I, I loved it a lot when I heard it before his death, you know, right before his death, and I, I loved it, you know, even more, kind of within the context of of, of knowing what he might have been singing about. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, it's ranked fifth, so you know, it goes at least breaking music. Uh, Ziggy Stardust, Low, Station to Station, Hunky Dory, and then Blackstar. Um, okay. And, you know, Blackstar outranks Heroes, uh, Scary Monsters, Latin Saint, and Diamond Dog. So not not bad. See, Heroes is... I, I think Heroes is, like, really underrated when it comes to that grouping. I don't know. I, I'm always going to be a Heroes over Low type of guy, but but, but we're, we're talking about Station to Station. Yeah. No, I, um, I, I love Heroes, too. But I, I also... Yeah. Uh, I remember there was it was record store day a few years ago at this point. We went to a few places in, in Manchester, um, and I just bought a ton of David Bowie. I don't, I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't... It might have been the year Blackstar came out. I think I just wanted to get a ton of his his stuff, and I, you know, I, I enjoyed all of it. Um, but Station to Station was one that I think I gravitated towards just because I, I just... I, I love that cover. I think it's really cool. It's one of my yeah. favorites. Yeah. He always has a still from uh, the man who fell to earth. Actually. Yeah, and he always um, he always has you know interesting, you know design both whether it's just his you know, stage appearance or um, his covers. But that one always caught my eye. Uh, this is the first time I've revisited it in a while, and I always psych myself out because for some reason I lump this in with the Berlin, the Berlin trilogy. And, yeah, and I think it's because. I, I actually did that to you. I screwed that up uh, initially. I specifically remember this when we when we were at the CVS store. You were like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna get Bowie." And I'm like, "Go for the Berlin trilogy." And I thought that it was Station to Station, Low and Heroes, where it's actually Low Heroes Lodger. But I, uh, actually, I think part of it is because Lodger is kind of for you know obviously Low and Heroes have certainly persisted from the you know his time of Berlin. But I, I think Lodger gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. I forgot that that album even. Existed. You know, I, I still don't own it, actually. Yeah, um, but I think it psyched me out because I went into this thinking it was super. It was going to be super experimental because he was finding himself, and it very much is seventies Bowie. I mean, this this album is kind of what you. Would... Yeah, but th- th- there are some really weird flourishes. Like, I mean, oh. the, the title track alone, I, I think, is just one of the oddest things that Bowie's ever made, and I, that's saying a lot. Oh, for sure. And it was actually was interesting. Is is as the album was progressing, the first time I was listening to it, that was the note I was I was putting down. Is that you know not really feeling it. Um, it, it one of those, it's good, but but not great. But I think it was just because I psyched myself up with that thought that this was supposed to be one of his more experimental experimental albums. Um, 
But I think just listening to it for what it is and kind of, you know, removing myself from the context I imposed on it, there are some excellent tracks on this. I mean, I mean, yeah. th- this is very much, you know, if, if you want a great Bowie album, this is pretty up and down. A um, just just an excellent, excellent example of what he did so well. You know, some great variety. Um, I think the the, the one two punch of Word in a Wing and TCP one five are just. Uh, TCP one five. Oh wow! Just <laughs> there was just like the extra oomph for energy that that really grabbed my ear in person to the the songs around it. But I mean, all these songs are great. Um, yeah. And I think yeah, Wild as the Wind is it just felt like a banger. Like or at least as much of a banger as a seventies ballad can can feel like, but it's just so Yeah. Can we can we go just back a few steps for a second? Because um that whole exp- like experimental kind of expectation is something that I've dealt with personally mm-hmm. listening to Bowie as well. Um like I had a really big Bowie phase in college where like I bought like Aladdin Zane, Diamond Dog, Ziggy Stardust, like I bought like all those classic albums, but I didn't think I bought Low or Heroes. Um, and, like, it, you know, it's it, so much of, you know, experiencing music is is up to context. Because, like, I think if we view it in terms of, like, okay, this was, like, what a lot of, like, you know, th- this was probably the most experimental thing to hit the mainstream in the 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, like, but right now, like, when we have, like, you know, you know, I actually, pretty much all of the artists we talk about after this, doing stuff that's even more out there and yeah. weird. You know, it's it's just like in comparison, it's not as much. And so I I was personally like a little uh, bummed out from that. And so I ended up selling my copy of Aladdin Sane and Diamond Dogs and and Ziggy Stardust, I think. And so, uh, you know, but it's, you know, when you think about it more as like. Uh, like sort of if you take it out of its out of its time or at least or maybe perhaps like put it back into its time and not compare it to everything else you've you've definitely like there's a lot of weirdness going on and like you know Bowie's fucking weird like even beyond like the whole like Thin White Duke persona and everything and just I mean I I was actually I was reading about sort of the um, the background behind this album and sort of this era in Bowie's career mm-hmm. it is bizarre like he was apparently just like he apparently doesn't remember didn't remember actually making this album <laughs> or at least a lot of a good chunk of it uh, um because he was so dependent on cocaine at the time yeah, uh but on top of that he was I think he subs- like subsisted almost entirely on milk and peppers um <laughs> just you know so it was it was a lot of a lot of weird stuff going on for him and the whole thin white dupe persona was like kind of fascist even (laughs) what's what's up with like that era and um like the weird recording you know studio diet like i I think back to when we talked about um (laughs) Uh, we talked about Captain Beefheart, and like he would, ju- they would just have like a cup of soybeans a day, and that was well, it. I mean, they, like if you're talking about the making trout mask, like yeah, that that is a bizarre situation because he pretty much like held his like entire band just like they they, they just held up in like this house for like months yeah. and just worked on this thing because Zappa gave him just like complete studio freedom, and it was just 
I mean, it, it was abusive, basically, and yeah. like, you know, you, I don't think they were making any money, so it was like, of course, like, you pick the one thing they have to eat. And it's mm-hmm. like soybeans. It's kind of like how like John Zorn subsisted almost entirely on potatoes in the eighties and probably part of the seventies too, just because it was the cheapest thing to mm-hmm. eat. And like it actually filled you up to a certain extent. <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, like I, I, I don't know how much things have improved from there, but I like to think it's a little bit, a little bit better than that. <laughs> Well, yeah, you, you, you can get boba instead of just soybeans. <laughs> I know. Um, but, but, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point about experimental nature of music and, and how it, it definitely fluctuates with time. I mean, there are certain releases. Like, I think no matter how much time passes, you know, speaking of Trout Mask, I think that album will always be looked at as experimental, like just by the nature of how, you know, how yeah. it was made, what it sounds like. Um, but, yeah, for sure. At the time, I could totally understand um, how people heard this, and it was just you know off kilter. It was off, you know, just off the mark from what they were used to hearing, you know, in the seventies. Um, but obviously, by today's standards, this just kind of sounds like seventies rock in, in a way. Um, and yeah. I think the other, the other thing that always occurs to me is, I think there was just so much invention and creativity going on in the 70s and part of me uh, part of me always thinks like like well if i had to pick a decade to, to live in um like it would be the 70s because i love like there's so many albums i love and i love the way you know i feel like a lot of innovation happened back then but i feel like the best like whenever i ask you what decade do you wish you lived in you know it, it should always be now because you have access to all these, you have access to all the me- like all the media that you're going to cite as a reason you want to live in that decade. Y- you can currently consume it. <laughs> like, like it's not like you see. I, I, I see where you're going. I kind of disagree because I would love to be back in the 1980s, like near like the tail end of like the no wave scene, mm. like in New York, and like you know pretty sure going down the street at like 10 at night you're gonna get mugged like i i for, for some reason that aesthetic appeals to me maybe not the mugging part but just like <laughs> like that like the whole new york downtown scene is like starting to really like blossom and stuff like that like i would love to be in the middle of that and like yeah you you wouldn't have access to everything that you have now but it's like damn if you wanted to you could go to a different show every fucking night mm-hmm. like and like that's so cool. Like, like, that's something I have never really taken advantage of when I've lived in, like, you know, uh, metropolitan areas. So I I would love to do that. Um, yeah. And, 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 like, also just no pandemic in the 1980s. Just, yeah. you know, thermonuclear annihilation is just very possible instead. <laughs> yeah. And I think there, there is something to be said about, um, like, I wonder what it would have been like to experience like you know death battle like several movements in the metal scene just mm. completely fresh like just hearing oh yeah you hearing, like hardcore punk shows yeah dude. like like hearing morbid angel for the first time or hearing like suffocation for the first time like like that bone crushing breakdown and uh yeah pierce from within but I, I feel like we we all have our own kind of ex you know discovery moments like that because you know it's all new music to us in a way i mean certainly we have the context of other um, like death metal is not a new genre anymore. Like you know, back in the eighties, it was completely fresh. Like, what the hell is this? But um, now that's not the case. 
mm. um, of course. But yeah. yeah, so I mean, all that to say is I totally, you know, while it may not be experimental by our standards, so to speak, uh, definitely can see why in the 70s this was not exactly what not exactly what people expected or, or like he, yeah. he continually brought something different to the table of this, you know, kind and, of this. And, and I think just to have a musician of Bowie's like popularity release just like a 10 minute track that is the beginning track of your album I, I think is a pretty bold move um, and one that pays off really well again like I, I, I love the title track of this album so much like that, that refrain that always comes back to da na 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 na. Like, for some reason, like that, always kind of freaks me out in a way. Like, there's just something like very like ominous about the title track. It, it it's like it, it kind of reminds me of uh, John Zorn's like the gift almost. That it's like you you have a lot of this normal tradition, but every so often you get like a little glimpse of the uncanny and all that's all you need to completely like just you know change the face of a song Mm -hmm. um yeah i i i love this album i really need to listen to more bowie uh because i mean i have a whole slew of his stuff i just you know when you have so many albums on your shelf you just kind of lose track of what's there i know Um, And, and that is totally why it's one of the reasons i love these episodes is because these are all albums I hadn't listened to for a while, and now I'm you know fired up to fired up to check out the other stuff on my shelf I have from them. Yeah, yeah. I I don't really have any m- much more to say though uh, about Station Station. Uh, the oh, actually, wh- one little little thing is um, I love the uh, the text like the 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 font layouts. How there's there's no spacing mm-hmm. between words, uh, which is like something you see nowadays. But you don't really see that. I, I I personally haven't seen it a ton back then. But like it's all plastered all over this album, uh, and I I think it's really cool. So yeah, I, I mean I, I love the des- you're totally right. I love the design of this album. Um, mm. Very very befitting of the time. Uh, I think I guess I'm talking myself out of what I just said. But like I love '70s style, like '70s design. Um, it's it's really really cool. Um, but now we're going to jump uh, exactly ten years, as we are going to continue doing, because I, I I just I really love that all these albums are exactly ten years apart. Um, yeah. Because I know sometimes we do like a you know maybe a twenty five year anniversary, and then one's like a, uh, like a, a thirty a thirty or something like that. You know, yeah. It, it doesn't fall on the same you know whatever the same timeline. But this is definitely, as you said, a little bit more. Maybe maybe not super experimental by today's standards, but at the time, this must have you know definitely um, sent shockwaves through the hardcore punk and yeah. know, related communities. And that is "Atomizer" by Big Black. Um, Big Black is probably better known by their sophomore album, which has a slightly more <laughs> eye-catching title and cover. <laughs> but songs about fucking is great. It, it, uh, it is. It, it, I can we just I, I'm just I want to talk about this now actually is that it kind of pisses me off that this album doesn't it doesn't have a CD release to it. Oh, it doesn't. Um, oh, I didn't no, know that. Well, I, so, I, I just I happen to have it on vinyl. I never you know. It technically doesn't. Um, you can actually find it. Um, it's compiled with I, I think it's either the Rich Man's Eight Day Track Tape or uh, the Hammer Party. I can't remember which one, but there are two big black compilations that hold pretty much all of their recorded work that isn't 
from Songs for Fucking. Um, and so, yeah, it, I, it really ticks me off that I can't get just, like, a normal copy of Atomizer. Because, I mean, th- th- this is a fun album. I mean, it's it, it's a dark, dirty, gross album. And it's very just, you know, it's cynical as fuck. Um, but, like, man, it's a fun listen. That just feels really weird to me because they only had they only had two albums. Like, how do you yeah? But how do I you mean, not have see, a... that, like I, I, what you might be forgetting, Scott, is that uh, Steve Albini is involved here. <laughs> and he he <laughs> and feels that, he need to complicate but, everything. Yeah, yeah. Basically, like that. You know, he has his own proclivities and you know his his own certain way he wants to do things. Like he was even reluctant to uh, adopt like the CD even. Uh, w- w- which is why I think that compilation is called the Poor Man's Eight Track, uh, if I remember right. That that just seems I don't know. That seems counter counter to what you'd assume is that I, I feel like he. No, no. Well, it, like in a way, this this almost felt weird to listen to on vinyl. Like I don't know if like maybe that doesn't um, make sense, but like I feel like this yeah this feels like an eighty. Like, CD like it, release. It, it, it almost feels like it, it's it should be like on cassette more than anything. Yeah, right? exactly. Like on on vinyl, it's just it's such a grimy album that I it 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 feels like something that you would put on, um, you know, less. Yeah. Not, not, not that vinyl is like inherently regal format, but like in a way, it's Steve, Steve Albini's never been one to, um, you know, go a traditional route with with anything. Um, <laughs> Who, who yeah who is that um oh i wish i knew this off the top of my head but who was the the producer there was some kind of electronic producer who wanted to sample a big black um sample a big know. black song and he sent that like steel baney answered him and said sure but and then wrote a long rant about how he fucking hates electronic music <laughs> and and then he responded and he's like can we use this as as an advertisement for our new album and Steve Benny was like, "Yeah, sure, I don't give a fuck." But by the way, your music sucks. So he he, he bought a billboard and just put it up, and it was like the billboard was just an email from Steve Albini, absolutely shitting on his album, and shitting on electronic music. It's awesome. I, I'm gonna have to find this. Yeah, uh, or it's one of my. Fa- I forget what year it was, but it was one of my favorite music stories of that year. It was so funny. Um, yeah, it gives permission to sample use in uh, Oscar Powell. Yeah, I, I think I think I didn't remember it because I don't really. I don't think I recognized who it who it was. Um, yeah, but that that is really funny. Uh, uh, <laughs> but 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 yeah, I, I think um, and I was I was more focused on listening to this, so I, I didn't actually re-listen to songs about fucking. But I feel like I like that album better, and it, it's it's more remembered than Atomizer. But obviously, Atomizer is you know where they still laid their flag in the ground, so to speak. It has kerosene, which is is. <laughs> Is a, such an iconic Dude, track. You're forgetting Jordan, Minnesota, which is equally iconic. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, for me, like for whatever reason, obviously the, the the drums on this are programmed. That's you know well known. Um, you, I, you're also forgetting about like, "Hang with Me, Joe." Hang with Me, Joe. <laughs> but I, I, I feel like it's just for whatever reason the like the drums sound really fake on Jordan, Minnesota, which is, like, it's, it's not a bad thing. Like, I yeah. think it fits the album, but just, it's super jarring at first because they just sound, and I wonder why I didn't have the same feeling with Godflesh, but I think just the drums on Godflesh are even more, like, caveman and simple, and it's just, it's meant to be heavy, so it's not as obvious. But there are moments on Street Cleaner where it's like, holy shit, that's, like, 
That is, that is not a human being playing that. The, the, that's always what I think whenever I've listened to Pure, actually. Yeah. Like, that the, the, the intro track to Pure is, like, has, like, this weird, like, 80, like, this dance groove to it, almost. And I'm like, what What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is... Yeah, the, the, the presence of a drum machine um, is definitely a little weird and i think at times it, it can be a bit i don't want to say much but like it, like you you kind of get the idea it's like okay they're like it, it, it's it's not like there's a bunch of like uh rhythmic complexity to what's mm. going on even within drum machine and I, I think that that i think is at least partially due to like you know technical limitations at the time because i mean like 1986 we're talking about like really early drum machines yeah um, I think they so, they always credited like Dolby or something. They, they, I think they credited yeah, the, it was the, the, like Roland or yeah, whatever. Roland. Yeah. yeah, that's what it was. Um, yeah, for me, actually, pigmag off our, our last episode, um, that and and on a Throck album I got definitely mm. the most dynamic release of theirs that I've heard. In 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 that case, the the presence of artificial drums didn't really um, it didn't really matter. It didn't show up, but and these kind of concepts where the drums are so simple, it, it doesn't bother me as much. Uh, I think for me, like only artificial drums bother me when uh, it, it kind of takes the place of, of something. Like it, it's something that would be difficult to do as a person. Like it, it kind of it, it it replaces the need for for talent. And I don't know if that's like a yeah, harsh way to put I, it. Yeah, I, I I get where you're going. I I think my issues with it are more if it's. Um, if it's like if it sounds uh accidentally artificial almost like like i think in the case of this album like i think it's meant to sound artificial and like you know it really adds to kind of like the overall griminess and kind of like nihilistic um kind of sound of the album you know including the lyrics whereas like i think you know uh actually what, what popped to my mind was uh jason becker who is uh david lee roth's uh lead guitarist when Roth broke away from Van Halen, mm-hmm. um, but he had a solo album called uh, "Perpetual Burn," which I I actually really like, um, but it is just filled with like you know electronic drums and it just does not sound great um, because you have just like this person just like bleeding out their soul with a guitar and then the rest of it is just all synthesized orchestration almost. Mm. It's a it's it's just kind of a jarring effect, and it's not a purposeful one. Like it's not like Jason Becker's going and you know, trying to like say like that's the fucking point, guys. You know, yeah. it's like whereas Steve Albini's kind of he, he, at least a little bit kind of taking the piss with, you know, w- w- with this kind of setup. But I, I I think it's probably also you know a stylistic choice as well, and you know, but I mean I, I, we're only talking about one one third of this album in a way yeah i, I, don't, I don't know how we, we we always get in these tangents sometimes um i mean but... i i feel like the, those are more important than actually talking about the album in a way because like you know i i don't know if you've listened to this podcast you you've listened to atomizer and you've listened yeah. to probably every album that we talk about today yeah i think it's cool when we talk about our you know obviously like you said like or like you should just suggest that these albums are pretty um pretty well established <laughs> You know, like they—they all. I think the last one is probably the the least, but yeah. that's probably more due by time yeah, than anything. Yeah, for sure. But the first three, I mean, if you care about these specific scenes and genres, they're well established. So it's cool to talk yeah. about our own experience. And I guess to that end, what I love about 
Big Black and this album specifically is it's almost a a series of contradictions that work like in a way I find their music very catchy and groovy but like angry and not not melodic it's you know it's really intense and you know just nihilistic but also fun to listen to like you know the way that the there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek you know kind of a humor to be had uh, like the album cover especially, which I, I still love. I love the album cover yeah. so much. Because, like, I, you know, I, I feel like whenever I listen to this album and I look at the album cover, I'm like, yeah, uh, I'll be the one to light those matches. Thank, <laughs> please, and thank you. <laughs> but, yeah, like, it's just, it's so, like, it's so fun to listen to. And, and just, if, it, 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 I feel like it would fit in so well, um, like, if there were a few more, if they had like a real drummer and they kind of hone things in a little bit, this would fit so well in the '80s punk scene. And that's one of the things I love about this band or this album is that there's so much of this that is right on the mark with what was going on at the time, but mm-hmm. then they just take it in such you know a different direction. Um, I I wonder if that had anything to do with like location because I'm pretty sure uh, Steve Albini like made a lot of this in like Chicago, um, but. I'm not totally sure, but I, like I, I wonder if like if it was New York instead, there'd be like maybe like a real drummer and like all these different changes to it or not. That's uh, a really good point because obviously you don't really hear much about the Chicago punk scene. Yeah, um, but the the thing is, there there are scenes everywhere. Yeah, like um, I oh, you know, we we should at some point um, we should read hardcore tribal history, uh, because that that's like I love that book. I mean, it's it's basically like an encyclopedia of hardcore punk. And, like, you end up learning about, like, these scenes that, like, you never knew existed. Like, there were a couple of just, like, Detroit. Like, who, who thinks of, like, Detroit punk? <laughs> it's just, like, well, it, it, it's it's really it's really cool to sort of see, especially, like, how much those scenes differ. Because, I mean, you can even hear it just in simply just East and West Coast punk. But, you know, Detroit gets, like, pretty nasty. Like, a band like Negative Approach, like, mm. they're pretty grimy for, like... You know, especially considering like what their contemporaries were doing at the time, um, like it's it verges almost more on like, you know, almost like grindcore at times. Yeah, just like with the screams and everything. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's I I I I really like this album. It's it reminded me of like how much I really do need to get the rest of Big Black's discography uh, because. I mean, it's really only two other albums because of the, you know, the, the, those compilations. Um, yeah, I, I have you ever, have you listened to a lot of Shellac, by the way? No, actually, they are always a band I lo- I've looked for, um, and just have never seen their stuff in any of the, the stores. But now I'm feeling a little bit motivated to to make it happen. Yeah, hey, I, I don't know if you'd find anything, honestly, like because it's like. It's been a while since they've put out an album, and like I, don't know, I feel like the people who like know about Shellac would probably rather keep their Shellac albums. <laughs> yeah, that's always that's always tough when you get to these kind of bands that are a little bit more niche or that you feel like would probably have a cult following. Is that you're just not going to see? Like there, there have been sometimes. Uh, I wish I could think of an album off the top of my head where I saw. Um, Oh, like when when there were those copies of Effigy the Forgotten and Pierce from Within at Bull Moose mm. that one time, like though I don't think that they printed new CDs of those whatever label they were on, like 
in years. So it was it was surprising me that someone why would you give up? Those are like two of the most acclaimed death metal albums ever. Like why would you sell those? I mean I'm glad they did, but like why yeah. <laughs> why would you? Um, yeah. Um I'll say Shellac's worth checking out a little bit. I, I've never really resonated with a ton of their music, but I, I always like to try to give it a shot every so often because like there's something there. And like the, there are some really like um they have an album, I think it's called like Ad Action Park. Uh and it's you know, making mm. fun of the uh the the infamous New Jersey theme park action park. But mm. um yeah, I we keep going way off track. Yeah. Um I mean that that's the thing is like I think part of this difficulty is just like you can describe Big Black's music, but you can't describe the feeling of listening to it. And I mean, I, I I guess that's true for like every band out there and every album out there, but I think it's especially prevalent here because like it's just you know I I think with any punk album is it's it's the fucking performance of it that really you know kind of makes the whole thing stick together. It's like the glue of the music in a way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think <laughs> the, the last thing I want to note is. Um, I just I love the guitar tone on this. Mm. Uh, it's I mean, in a way, it's it's kind of hideous. Like it's it's, Yo, it's, yeah. it's it's such an the, it's the, like, the, the whole album's production is pretty awful. Like, but but you know, by but by I guess by normal standards. But uh, but it's crazy because like I mean that in a, in a good way. Like it was super. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> like I, I love. It's just it's so. It's like scratchy and like yeah, too like, loud. Uh, Steve, and... Steve Albini is always like snarling. Like he he always sounds like he has like a sneer. Yeah. In his voice whenever he sings. Exactly. Uh, but I feel like it's just it's so, it's so on brand. I I, I think that's yeah. not that I want to necessarily. Well, I guess I will just use some examples. But like, there's nothing worse than an album that's either under or overproduced. Uh, like we we were talking about this at almost the other day. Is, is that I've just never gotten into, into tombs. Because I feel like their music is just not... It's not produced... Like, they try to combine black metal and sludge, and just their production is right down the middle. Like, it needs to be rawer or heavier. Um, and then, of course, there's plenty of plenty of black metal. Like, the list goes on forever that really could use a little bit of a tune-up. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just too raw. So, But it, it's nice to hear when an album needs to be this gritty and needs to be this in-your-face, and it just totally delivers. Um, yeah. 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 Um, okay, I mean, are we, are we ready to move on? Yes, and that? now we're going to change uh, change gears a little bit. Uh, this is uh, an album that, I don't know why, like when my first turn of the crank with this genre, I, I just, this didn't show up as prominently as other releases, and then I wish I had heard it, heard it sooner. That is uh, Tortoise, Millions Now Living Will Never Die. Uh, came out in 96, uh, 25 years old, which is, is kind of crazy. Uh, and this is a... A well-regarded post-rock band and album, but it, it just, you know, when, when I was first getting into post-rock, you know, it was Mogwai, Godspeed You Black Emperor, obviously, you know, Explosions in the Sky, uh, like a very specific sound. And I think, I think my, part of the reason might be that Tortoise don't really, obviously there's a lot of elements that you, you kind of can point to, so yeah, that's post-rock, but they don't really approach, it, approach the genre in the exact same, like, you know, crescendo. There, there are a few bands, though, that are like that. Like, um, uh, Slint, actually, yes. is the first one that comes to my mind. Because it's like, they're 
considered like post rock, but also kind of math rock. And I'm like, I don't really see either of those. Yeah, frankly, they're one of those. It, 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 it's, it's sort of like how like um, how like post hardcore and emo have kind of like overlapping bands and sounds, and it's just like at, at like at what point do you kind of draw the line? like the distinction or should you even do that in the first place and i think with like with a band like tortoise where they're like pulling from like a ton of different stuff while they're doing this it's just like there's just no way to go about it but i mean also i don't know wouldn't you consider these guys kind of almost like before post-rock in a way because like mogwai in like godspeed didn't really come out with stuff until like what like the like early 2000s right yeah, post rock is is a weird, it's a weird genre, <laughs> and, and definitely, early in terms of it's it's founded because in a way it's one of those genre tags that's kind of dumb. It's like, oh it's, yeah, it's like it's, post. It's a very dumb. It's like it evolves beyond the need of need for rock, and it's like oh okay, that's. It's kind of it's it's you know I'll, I, I mean I I guess it's a good warning because yeah. so much of it is just completely up its own ass, but yeah. <laughs> um, but it's kind of like I'll never. Whenever we have a genre discussions, I think alternative rock is is or alternative in general is bad because like everything's an alternative to something. Like, yeah. like I, I would listen to alternative rock. It's like okay, well here's some grindcore. That's alter- that That's alternative to the mainstream. Have fun with that. Uh, so, but yeah, I, actually, I I I, I want to one up you here. I think the worst out like genre tag is urban, uh, especially because it sho- just it only shows up in the Grammys. <laughs> That's... They're just, you know, like, best urban album of the year. And it's just like, yeah, um, kind of racist, first of all. But second, not really doing your job describing the genre at all. <laughs> no, because that doesn't, like, that doesn't even... Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, not a genre. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you say, like, oh, like, the best rural album, it's like, so is that, like, folk, country, uh, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, I, I mean, Tortoise kind of came out around... Uh, now I'm going to check, because I feel like Mogwai... Um, I, I think. I, I, well, why don't you talk? I'll, I'll look it up for you. Yeah, but um, at least listening retroactively, you know, all the crescendo crescendo core you okay, think of. Okay, so uh, Mogwai Young Team came out in '97. Oh, so, so after, interesting. Okay. Yeah, but they were formed in '95. Yeah. So you know, take it as you will. But also, uh, isn't a tortoise is uh, an American band? Mogwai Scottish. From, from, yeah. Yeah, from Scotland. Um, that's um, yeah, but Godspeed. Um, I think I think F sharp. Nineteen ninety four, huh? Okay, yeah, because I, I thought they were around. But ninety seven also was their first album. Yeah, um, but at least you know, looking back retroactively, you think of like you know the quiet loud dynamic, just like building yeah. slow instrumentation and these big, you know, kind of cinematic, almost orchestral, and in some cases literally orchestral flourishes. And uh, that's kind of not what Tortoise does. And the first time I, I, I heard this, uh, I think it was really cheap at Red Scroll, which is a record store in Connecticut. We go whenever we visit Lauren's family, and it's, it's one of my favorites. Uh, it was really cheap, and I like the cover. I don't know, something about the design um, it just yeah. always interested me. And it's just it's an interesting mix of what you expect from post-rock, you know, kind of quiet, thoughtful instrumentation, different you know instrumental flourishes here and there that you know rise and fall at a somewhat predictable pace but then along the way you have just this 
steady electronic influence. Uh, you have some slightly jazzy passages, which actually makes a little bit more sense now that, uh, what was it, a, a suite for Jeff Parker? Uh, I'm trying to remember his name, but last year, um, uh, I think he was the drummer from Tortoise. Uh, he released like a dedicated jazz album on International Anthem, um, huh. and it was it was really cool. And I was man, I, I didn't know that when I was listening to it. Um, but yeah, he used to be he used to be in Tortoise, and or he might still be. And now it, it kind of helps explain a little bit some of the jazz. We're not, we're not talking like full on jazz, but I feel like some of the progression, some of the drumming, you kind of get that tone. Um, yeah, with, with I think with with the later tracks, uh, the the debut like the intro track or the first track, uh, Dejed, however you say that, mm -hmm. uh, I don't really hear that all that much. Yeah, frankly, um, if if you don't mind getting to this now, um, I actually really hate this opening track. Oh really? Um, yeah, like I really dislike it uh, because it just it, it's. It tries to do way too much, and it just fails on nearly every front that it's trying on. Uh, you know, a, at least when it comes to, like, because, you know, you have, like, this glitchy section around, like, 16 minutes. You've got, like, this minimalist, you know, Terry Riley, Steve Reiki kind of section. You've got, you know, you've got all these different sections going on, and they just don't really work with each other. It just, like, it, it almost reminds me of, uh, it, I, I, this is probably the third time we've brought this up in like consecutively in episodes uh between the berry to me actually like of like colors mm. because of like sort of that way that they try to make these transitions to different sounds and it just feels so artificial and it's just like i i i don't think any of these things on their own would have been bad but that you have to stuff them into a 20 minute song i think makes them bad because you're just it, it just feels unnecessary um and like you know, so listening to this again earlier this week, uh, and I am actually very new to this album. Like, I just bought it. Like, I think it wasn't the last CD buy we did, but the one before that. And, uh, you know, it's like, I almost wanted to shut the album off, actually, just because, like, Dijia just bored me that much. But the rest of the album is really good. And even, like, that kind of, like, glitchy section that's around the 16-minute mark in Dijia, really good. Like, you know, but the thing is, the, the 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 tracks like three quarters over by then <laughs> so it's just like what what did i just spend 15 minutes listening to mm -hmm. uh and, and sorry i'm i it, it's a rant it's just um I, i've just never understood like because people like really like this track like i looked all through rate your music uh on reviews for this album they were just like over the moon about this track and i just do not see it at all so uh and i, I see this because I think the rest of the album is that good, really. So that's interesting. I, I mean, I, I I can I can appreciate some of the things you're saying. I, I still like it, um, but I I, I it, it, it has its good moments. Yeah, you know? and on the the glitchy section, uh, I have this album on vinyl, like I mentioned, and I thought there was something wrong with the record the first time. <laughs> me, I me, me too. Me yeah, too. I remember distinctly because the way. I don't know if they did this on purpose or like that's the or I don't know specifically what they were going for. Um, I mean, I really like it, but on first listen, I was like, it sounded like almost there was a like there were some grooves missing. 
Yeah. Like just it, like it ran out of music to play, and I was like, wait a second, what the fuck? What the fuck happened? Yeah, I it, it, I've had issues with my current stereo, mm-hmm. so I was like, I it, even though I've listened to this thing before, I'm just like, oh no, is this the death knell? <laughs> yeah, is this, is this it? Um, yeah. But I, I will say on I guess for like a slightly different uh, vantage point, uh, I, I like the almost double. It helps because of the way that the the vibe or the record is structured. I like almost the double EP feel of this album. You have one full side that's just this long extended track, and then a lot of more accessible, um, you know, in ways punchier moments on the the B side. Um, mm. it, it's an interesting dynamic that I I, I really appreciate it, and I, I like the the different looks into a band sound. Uh, I, I, I do think... I, I, I like when albums do that. Like, yeah. especially, like, you know, I, I don't have any vinyl, but I like that idea of it. Like, especially, like, we always... When we talk about, like, good vinyl sides, um, Tag Omega by Can Is always great. comes to mind. Yes. Yeah. Um, of just, like, having, like, complete sides dedicated to tracks, basically. Yeah. It, it, it's difficult. Exactly. Um, I was... I wonder what goes into that, though. Is the idea because um, you definitely whenever you have these long songs, there are definitely you know ebbs and flows. There are moments that you might uh, you might see as it's or like at one point they might have been written as its own track or something like that. You know, I wonder what what makes a band decide, hey, like we're gonna actually put a bunch of ideas together into this twenty minute behemoth. Um, yeah, I I really don't know with this track in particular because like it's just like it just like there are parts of it that are just genius and there are other parts that feel like it's like like this is the band's first track that they've ever made like they just met before going into the recording booth kind of uh it it is it is perplexing um so you know (laughs) can't really comment (laughs) But, but you you, you, did, know, you did like the uh, the latter half though because I remember when, oh, when yeah, you bought this I, mean, like, like, I, I, but, I never really knew how much you enjoyed or or did not enjoy post rock it's not really a genre we've talked about a lot um, so so I, I I used to be really into it um, many years ago um, but I just I I, I think um, I here's the thing it's just like a lot of post rock has like this kind of like hipster feel to it sometimes oh for sure yeah but with with just kind of like the way like like kind of like the art surrounding it and sort of the titles like even the title for this is like okay so it's taken from a jehovah's witness like you know essay like okay that's great what what is that supposed to fucking mean about your music (laughs) like you know it it just feels like it's it's like the musical equivalent of like a hipster wearing like a Martin guitar T-shirt, yeah, and it's like it's like not because they they play Martins or that they've even played a guitar. It's just like oh, it's just a Martin guitar T-shirt. Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> uh, I'll also so, say that even as much as I, I, I love Godspeed, I think they made some. You know, they make, yeah, some oh yeah, Let Your Skinny Fist is like a great album. I'm not gonna, but like they and even like Dijed, there are great parts of this yeah. out, like this track. So, but I will say to see, kind of speak to what you're saying there. I think, I mean, it's always tough with instrumental music to, uh, like, for example, there's, I don't want to name them by name just because they're, I, I do like the album, but it's a new album that came out this year 
where they talk a lot about their you know stances against white supremacy and, and racism, which are good. Those are bad things. Speaking out against them <laughs> is good. But they're an instrumental, like, drone metal band, and they don't have... I think they have one... There was one song where it was kind of, like, pretty... Pretty... I don't want to say obvious, but kind of, like, general phrases about, like, rising up and whatnot, but that was it. So, like, I feel like, in some ways, that reminded me of Godspeed, where a lot of the political pinnings people put in their music are... It's just... It's not... It's not as strong. It's a little bit more contextual or like what they, yeah. what they like I think like on Slow Riot for New Zero Canada, which is a great, great EP. Like I think there's, there's when people cite the political, you know, the, the political nature of the, the EP, they talk about the fact there's a, a diagram of how to make a Molotov cocktail insert. And I'm like, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that like necessarily makes it like a strong, like political yeah. album. Um, but it is interesting, this last thing I'll say, that post-rock has kind of fit into two buckets. You have the super hipster, like, you know, too smart for their own good camp. But then you have totally swing the other way with bands like Explosion in the Sky doing soundtracks for, like, huge... Obviously, they, they got a name for themselves with uh, Friday Night Lights. They did the soundtrack for that. And then since then, they've done soundtracks for big Hollywood movies. Like, they've become basically, like, mainstream. And in a way, that's why a lot of people think post-rock has died, is because you have bands like that make kind of the same cinematic crescendo core kind of music that's very formulaic very you know paint by numbers um hmm. so it, it, yeah. well, i'll let to because i we started this saying like my own thoughts on post-rock and it was just like you know i i think i got kind of tired of that over time mm-hmm. but uh given like my recent just major interest in ambient music like i really kind of want to shoot more towards post-rock and listen to some of the more like essential albums like I, i've never listened to um like the first two mogwai albums or really any mogwai album like in full um you know it's just like i i wouldn't mind giving those a listen i wouldn't mind listening to like some of the more acclaimed uh albums from like the past decade because i just feel like i've kind of slept on them so yeah yeah i uh it, it's it's definitely for me a, a boomer bust genre I, I think mogwai yeah. has a really uh it's i kind of like mogwai for the same reason i mentioned like how i like tim hecker like i feel like they especially songs like uh, happy songs for happy people which has some amazing amazing tracks on that one of my favorite post-rock albums uh they do kind of like the short punchier post-rock tracks so sometimes i'm not in the mood to put on you know lift your skinny you know fingers like antennas to heaven and listen to like a 20 minute drone with like the sound you know like field recording and yeah. stuff like that so um but yeah I, I i really appreciate how tortoise takes a slightly different view on the genre um i have a few other albums from them that i enjoy too and i i think that they they just have, i i really want to buy tnt at some point i actually uh, never heard that i think this you know millions millions of living in tnt are like considered their best and I think Millions Not Living has a better cover by like a mile. So when it was, you know. I, really, because I, I I kind of like the TNT album cover. Oh, uh, well, I, I guess just because it it in my opinion it's much more distinct than uh, Millions Not Living. I guess that's true. I don't really like the all white album cover. Like, well, like, I I don't know if you noticed that it's it, it's like a doodle that's drawn on like one of those like Maxwell like Maxell um, like uh, blank CDs. 
Oh, interesting. Basically. I'm gonna look yeah. up. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It, like you, you know, like when you buy like a CDR that comes in a jewel case, oh, it'll have yeah. like those liner notes. Yeah, and it just it, it somebody just literally just doodled on that. I that that's the that. album cover. So interesting. I, I mean, for yeah. for me, I you know, if it's an all white album cover, I want something like uh, like Yank Crime or Triple X, where like what yeah. what is in the center of all that that blank space is just a really eye eye catching image. Um, but speaking of it's time to change the topic uh we yeah. are on to our we're on to our last album jumping again to kind of the nether region of what's considered a like a classic album or like you know i, th- I think for me that the rule of thumb has always been like some people will say it's been butterfly already a classic and i'm like just give it just give it a little, a little bit of time a little bit of time you know i think yeah. for me 10 years has to pass before i'll think of selling as a classic which i think is is pretty it's pretty reasonable. Uh, five five seems too little, and we, we you know we go by a system of five and tens. So, uh, <laughs> but by, I think by now, this is maybe a slightly underrated, yeah, release in the band's discography. But I I think it's a really notable one. Um, definitely, considering the album that came before it and, and what came after, it was an interesting you know moment in the band's career. And that is, uh, dousing. Anemone with Copper Tongue, which uh, definitely makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense, um, yeah. And it's by uh, K.O. Dot. came out in 2006, 15 years ago. I distinctly remember buying this album from the original Bobo's location in Salem, which was decidedly less nice than the current location. You know what's um, weird, though, is like I feel like I found more music in that old location. You know what? That's it's very true. <laughs> it's uh, very, very but, true. But but I I think that was mostly because I was you know a young lad, a, a young wee our, lad, wet behind were, the ears. Our, our <laughs> collections were skimmer, back, slimmer back then, so there was more oh, yeah. more yeah. possibilities. To I, buy I mean, stuff. like I I remember I I bought my first Slayer album at that at that Bomos, uh, but which was Christ Illusion. I out of all the out of all the Slayer albums I could have bought. Uh, Christ Illusion was my first. It's, it's still, I, I think it's a good album, but anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, no, they, so this is an interesting album. I actually, I, I never really looked at their, like, discography, like the actual um, uh, times for everything that everything came out. Um, okay, okay, so this came out. Okay, this makes a whole lot more sense now. Um, yeah, th- this is before. Uh, Blue Lambency downwards, but after their debut, uh, which I've actually I don't know if I've ever listened to their debut. Now that I think about it, um, Choirs of the Eye, yeah, really, yeah. Oh, that's seriously. interesting. That was going to be a core element of what I was going to talk about. But uh, go ahead. Yeah, I, well, I, so we'll, we'll attack from two different sides because I knew Blue Lambency downward more than <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, let's. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, so Choirs of the Eye came after. Um, I don't know if Modlin of the Well had been dissolved by then. I, 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 it kind of was around the same time, but Modlin of the Well was basically, um, in a way, it was between the Buried to Me before, between the Buried to Me. Like, it was, except kind of replaced the prog metal with the avant garde metal. You know, mm. Modlin of the Well were definitely. You know, trying to put put a lot of different ideas and kind of like a lot of zany, you know, time shifts and weirdness into their and time and genre shifts into their music. But there was definitely a metalcore, you know, core the foundation. Um, and then 
with Choir's the Eye, which came out, I think, in 2001. Um, 2003. 2003. Uh, really? Wow, okay. I thought, yeah. I thought it was earlier than that. Um, but he... Ex- well, they, didn't Model and Well put out, like, three albums before they dissolved? They were, they were pretty... I guess I'm prolific in the right word, but they, they, because they, they they did leaving your body map, then bath, then they did like like third album, like th- th- that was like what they called it or something. If I remember right. Yes, and, and the, the the thing about that is that they switched the like the titles didn't match the covers. Like bath had like a map type cover, and then leaving your body. Oh, okay. They, they, there was even a first one before that. Yeah, before I think bath it's something about. Map. I think it's something about fruit. I don't know. Yeah, uh, my fruit psycho bells is seed combustible. Yeah. Again total sense um but then bath leaving your body map and then part the second but that wasn't until 2009 so ko had already kind of started doing their own thing but anyway yeah it's um it, it was an interesting interesting series of albums uh i think that in some ways they he started to kind of find where he wanted to go with his sound, being Toby Driver, like the, the yeah. main, uh, with Choirs of the Eye. Uh, but interesting, it was actually an interview that uh, our friend Nick did for Heavy Blog when he talked to him. Uh, about, <laughs> I, 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 I knew you were going to bring this up. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, well, he talked about, like, in his early days, he just tried to write as big and ambitious as possible. Um, and then when they would go to play live, they just, like, flat out couldn't. Like there was absolutely no way that they could, they could do that because they were a small band. Like how are you supposed to, um, um, you know, like how are you supposed to like get all the people on a small stage or like the tour, like afford touring with that many people? Because they were, you know, not only just, um, you know, keyboards and multiple guitars and like that kind of setup, but also there was you know strings and horn instruments and whatnot. And what I always found striking about uh, dousing is. Uh, there's still those elements are present, but I feel like they're put forth not only from that perspective where I felt like he almost kind of started to get a sense of what what's going to translate from the studio to the stage, uh, but also I feel like he got a little bit more comfortable. I feel like this is the first time where you his songwriting starts to take uh, starts to put down roots um, in a way like Modern of the Well, you know, still young, a metalcore band trying to be weird. Uh, Choirs the Eye, you know, with with the first Ko Dot release, really trying to expand the weirdness, and this is starts to see him get his his footing in a way. Yeah, I I really I, like. Um, I actually really I got into Ko Dot with uh, Blue Lambency Downward, uh, which initially I did not like, but um, I really love this side of them, of just like this weird like chamber. Uh, kind of aspect like you know if 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 you want to put your sort of what you were just talking about in a different light it's almost like they started in like the symphony hall and then moved to the chamber instead mm-hmm. um, and, and I really like that like I, I love that sound of just like the kind of like the way Toby Driver plays around with space mm-hmm. a lot yeah for sure in in this album and, and in Blue Lamancy and just but but then how it like just in the in like turn of a dime he's willing to just blow it up again um especially just those vocals oh my god in like the first half of of dousing is just like insane like i i love them like i just i like i love how like wild it is kind of yeah uh, i i mean 
kind of kind of on both sides of the coin. It's interesting how this is both his boldest yet most maybe not restrained, but I feel like most fully realized. Like there's no weirdness. It feel it feels like true experimentation. Like someone who yeah. someone who isn't just like, hey, this might work. Like let let's put some zany, you know, clean. Hot, like guitar passages around these breakdowns, you know, it actually feels like a, a purposeful, um, you know, a purposeful collection of ideas. And yeah, I, I think it's a, I mean, it's a really great album. Um, I, I think I still love like Habardo a little yeah. more. Uh, do, just because like I, I felt like it was a more full realization of everything that they would had done like up to that point. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm really glad you said that because I, I think I wish there were more full-on metal projects in their discography. Like I love the embrace of his heavy sound in Habardo, which is kind of unfortunate because it doesn't seem like he's interested in doing that anymore. Um, you, you never know because, yeah, like, yeah, that's true. I, I mean, they like Habardo came after you know this album and Blue Lambacy, both of which were like much more toned down especially with blue lambs he didn't have like any uh you know harsh vocals at all and it was mostly just kind of like an avant-garde chamber album Mm -hmm. more than anything um yeah it's so like you never know you never know with artists man yeah i think but i guess the last album he did i forget what it was called um, it, it was, it was, uh, are you talking about a solo album, or uh, are you talking about the the latest Ko Dot album, Blasphemy? Uh, well, I, I was referring to Blasphemy, but I guess both, in a way, are a um, bit of a departure from. It sounded like he was getting in, into a groove with uh, Confidence on I, IO, and then yeah, I, I was, plastic plastic bass or whatever. Yeah, uh, which I really like that kind of synthy sound. Um, it did feel in some ways it was nice to hear his his songwriting be a little bit more like focused and somewhat straightforward um but i i just i appreciate overall how he you know toby always has a unique interesting approach um mm. that like no, no two albums are uh well i, I guess the, the two albums we just mentioned are, are probably the most similar but every album kind of has its own flavor its own style uh, i definitely mm. do think he reached a pinnacle in a great way with Hubardo. Like that's just such a such a crushing, you know, dense album. Um, it's one one of my one of my favorite, you know, experimental metal releases. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. Like, I mean, that uh, Colored Sands, probably. Yeah, which I think they came out like the same year. Or they came out around the same time. Um, that that sounds right. Yeah, um, but but again, just just to, to bring things full circle, um, I truly think you know, Quiet Eye gets all the attention. I think just because it's the the first one, and it it, um, it is a really good album, and also it has the the Zeta connection. Um, so maybe that's why. But I really think Dowsing was when Toby started to get his footing for what um, for what Ko Dot could be. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I I think I I, I mean I, I guess length I think can be a little bit of an issue here, but I mean I I feel like the music kind of demands it in a way, and just sort of the way things are spaced out, it actually seems very justified. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, regardless of like you know, I mean, you're still sitting through an hour of this, 
like yeah, exactly. uh, which the, the way the, the way i say it there it makes it sound like this album is a slog and it, oh. it's not it's just it's you know like i mean this thing if, if you haven't been listening to us this is a weird album you know this isn't necessarily like you know rock out with your cock out music so <laughs> but but it's it could be intense yeah maybe yeah, no, it, maybe it not rock intense, out but, but, but it's not um, like there's like like some like fist bumping anthem and like toby toby drivers like you know in the middle of like a fucking arena you know asking the audience if they're ready for the next song or not you know <laughs> it's it's a much more intimate sound for sure um yeah but like I said, at the top of the, or I think earlier in the podcast, that people might not be as familiar with this album, um, yeah. or familiar with Kodot it, in general. It, it's kind of a shame because I, I feel like yeah, this... it, it's tough to find Kodot yeah. albums though as well. Because um, I I know like I I don't know how I managed to get a copper a, a copper a copy of Dowsing, but I just found one of almost like it was just completely random, and like it's just like the only one that you can get with like really good possibility like or you get the best chances i think with the later ones but habardo i think is it going to just because it's on the flenser so you always know that there's going to be some sort of you know release of it somewhere yeah uh, but it, I, I, it, it can be difficult with other ones yeah i i, I think habardo is probably the, the cutoff i think when they either associated with the Flenser or other labels that got them distributed. Before that, they were a little bit more... And I think it's kind of the same issue with... Um, we're talking about with Shellac, that, mm-hmm. you know, Dot fans are not typically the type of people who would want to sell, um, you know, sell their copy of, of Choir's the Eye. I, I forget how, hot, how I bought mine, but I think it, it might have been a surprise at Bull Moose. Yeah, I, like, I'm trying to remember that, too, because I remember you, you having that copy, too. I, I really should get one. I might just do that after this episode. I might I might just go and bonus and just do a, do a couple spendies. <laughs> a couple spendies, love it. A couple spendies. <laughs> love it. Welcome to say sure of where we're slowly dismantling the English language one word at a time. <laughs> but you know what? We have fun. That's all that matters. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I do you have anything more to say? Because I I I don't really have a ton more. Or really anything more uh and we're, we're getting on in time so yeah i think it i think we're ready to hear about your album of the week so oh, let's, okay. let's do it switching up uh so you know i, I was actually this maybe so we, we earlier you brought up sort of the um the stupidity involved in the the term alternative when describing music um and this album of the week is uh, I, I alternative only in the way that it, it's simply not what you would normally think this genre is. Mm-hmm. And uh, the album is um, it's called um, How I've Loved You by uh, Angels of Light. Okay. Uh, but yeah. So uh, I, I have you listened to a ton of Angels of Light? Because I, I don't think we've ever really talked about them. Yeah. Like we always talk about swans. I like them. Yeah. Um, well, I, our fr- friend of the show, Devin, um, actually gave me like a whole list of stuff that she really likes, and that was the album that was on it. And I just, I, I really love this album. Uh, it was really, really enjoyable. Um, you know, and I say alternative because I mean, like, it's just like alternative country, I guess, because mm-hmm. like it, it has like that twang to it. 
but it's not quite there. And I mean, it's still not a great description of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just it kind of reminded me of that. But um, can we just have this conversation very quickly? Is that um, like I really thought that there would be more of a difference between like uh, post revival swans and like angels of light, but there really isn't. Like it's like they are eerily similar. Yeah, um, they really are. Yeah, and it's. I don't want to say it's discouraging because like I really love this album and I really love like you know what the Swans have done since they've come back, um, but it's just it's just very strange how how similar they are and like to the point that like you could honestly put on a track of like either Swans album or like an Angels of Light album and I don't think like someone who wasn't too experienced with either of those bands would really tell the difference yeah I think that was what criticism Fantano had about my rope will, will guide me um, yeah because... yeah but the thing is like it shows up in like the seer too I, I think maybe a little less with to be kind I mean like there are obviously sp- like spots throughout all of those albums where like you don't really hear like angels of light as much or at least like the intensity is driven up to a point that you really wouldn't expect it to sound like angels of light mm-hmm. but it's still you know it's just it's it, it can be it's just kind of off-putting at times but i you know i i say that with the most positive of attitudes because like again like like it might sound similar but it's nonetheless very good it, and it's just so it's so unique for what it is mm-hmm. you know it, and i just really adored it so yeah nice well, great. Yeah, I definitely think that. Uh, I mean, I mean, there's some overlap there, but I, it, it's still good, and, and I think it, it makes yeah. it makes sense because it's it's the same, you know, it's it's all all Gira. So you, you know what it's kind of like is um, it, it's like listen to like Radiohead or a Tom York solo album, and it's just like there's going to be some distinctions, uh, especially with. Uh, that last solo album, Anima, but you know, they, there's there's a ton of overlap. So, uh, and I think I, I mean I guess in the case of Tom York, it's mostly just because he's literally taking parts of old Radiohead songs and just kind of tinkering with them differently. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, nonetheless. Well, so what sweet. what have you got for your album of the week? Um, so I have a new album. From, from this mm-hmm. year um, and I picked this one just because there's a, a little bit of a story and I, I like my stories um, but <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll say off the bat it is Rye R-H-Y-E Home uh, this was a band I had or a, a solo artist that I, I've followed for a little bit now um, and I just it was kind of nice, you know, summery, like a dream pop, but a little bit on like the alternative B or, alt- or alternative R&B slant. Um, you're kind of spacious. But m- more alternative music. Yeah. But like just, you know, spacious singing, spacious beats. But I feel like this is, is the, the most lush, just beautiful, um, just well composed. Uh, in a way, it just felt like every other kind of bedroom pop album or artist you would have you would have heard of some of the earlier stuff and this one uh, I, I don't know the, the main guy's name but I feel like he really brought it home and it's it's just really 
was just pleasant to, to listen to. I think part of it is just because it's been really, really cold. And this kind of, this <laughs> gave me visions of, of like nice, breezy, warm weather. Um, I, are you sure that wasn't just the hypothermia? Yeah, it might be. Yeah, um, <laughs> coin but, toss, right? <laughs> but yeah, it's just it was it was a really beautiful album, and I really like growth in a genre that's meant to be uh, like this. Definitely can be the, the type of genre that's a little bit more of a uh, people want the vibes, people want you know, people want like just nice airy, like kind of like vaporwave or like cloud rap or something like that. I feel like mm. the alternative R and B and like the, the, this kind of genre, people just want like pleasant vocals, pleasant beats, whatever. And certainly, you know, this is really nice to listen to, really easy on the ears. But I feel like there's a lot more, a lot more depth here than on, on, you know, their past releases. And I really, really enjoyed it. You know, I was it was something I, I wanted to check out because it's a name that I've, you know, again, someone that I've listened to for a while, and it's a name that usually gets talked about in the kind of circles that I look at. But good for him. I, you know, yeah. good for him for upping his game. All right, nice. No, I'm, I'll have to I'll have to check that out a little bit some point i don't know I, I have not listened to any new music yet this year uh i, I yeah I, I i just won't go any further with that <laughs> um okay well thanks for listening and we'll be back next week all right bye bye Thanks for listening, guys. And uh, if you're interested, uh, you know, if you want to hear more, just, you know, listen to us on uh, iTunes, Pod, Apple Podcasts, Android Podcasts, anywhere you can get a podcast, basically. Uh, we're on all of it. Uh, if you follow us on Anchor, too, you know, whatever works for you. And uh, definitely be sure to follow us on Twitter. And if you ever have any suggestions, topics you want us to talk about or questions, anything like that. Uh, be sure to email us. Yeah, uh, we're at, at Seishira Podcast on Twitter, and our email, I think, is Seishira Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, as always, thanks for listening. Yeah, appreciate it a lot. Bye.